So, Carrie, I, I know you wrote in and uh, you said we should let you know when things are, you know, a little gross. We should give you a warning. And that makes sense because sometimes we do. Maybe we go a little too far. Are, Carrie, are there certain triggers uh, that, that gross you out in particular? Um, real, like really detailed um, descriptions of, say, you know, surgical procedures or like, you know, infectious diseases things like that right um, yeah yeah i don't know i'm not, i guess i'm not too bothered by most um you know by talk about oh god this is going to be really gross but um you know bodily fluids and things like that that doesn't really bother me so much but uh yeah i guess anything that makes me have like sympathy pains oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Carrie, the reason you're here then today is because we think we have something that that might push you, uh, that might push one of your triggers. And we wanted just to make sure uh, before we went on. Okay. I'm not eating. Okay, um, good. I don't plan on eating anytime soon, so we're good. All right. We, I think before we get to the interview, we're going to, we'll, we'll play you a little news clip about the story. And okay. you can decide whether or not to keep listening based on that. Okay. Okay. You ready? I think so. <laughs> Investigators are trying to figure out where a human foot came from after it was found washed up in Seattle. A group organized to clean up the city's waterfront discovered it near Pier 86 earlier today. The foot was still inside a shoe. There's no word how long it had been in the water or foul play is suspected. The medical examiner is now working to figure out an identity. I mean, I guess I'm horrified um, you... and a little curious as to where it came from. Okay, it's going to be gross. Okay. All right. Okay. So, so here we go. So that foot that we heard about washed up on the shore in Seattle, and it's at least the 15th foot that's washed up in the Pacific Northwest in the last several years. Yeah. There was a rash of them sort of eight or, eight or nine in a row, and then they stopped, and, and then this new one. Curtis Ebbesmeyer is an oceanographer and beachcomber, and he's been brought in to figure out where these feet are coming from. So, Curtis, why is it just feet that people keep finding? Well, it's very simple. The, the human body comes apart at the joints, and the feet are the only ones that wear protective floating uh, coverings, that is, sneakers or footwear. So when a body comes apart and the body comes apart at the ankle bone, um, what you have is basically a foot in a floatable sneaker. And the foot, of course, will uh, bloat like any body in the water will, you know, bloat up a little bit, and that wedges the foot right in the sneaker, and off it goes. And a foot in a sneaker can probably float for ten years. So basically, we're we're seeing feet and nothing else because the foot is essentially wearing a life jacket. Correct. Exactly. Well put. <laughs> Wait. So it's not that there's like some serial killer out there chopping up people, and then just the foot washes up. No, I've had a lot of media types ask me that. <laughs> it's very simple. It's the, uh, your feet wear life protectors and as simple as that. So it happens around the world and it's probably been happening a lot since the 1970s when like Air Jordans and so forth became popular. Wow. So, so the rest of the body then is probably what, eaten and, and down deep below the sea then? 
Yeah, but there are exceptions like, uh, for example, uh, if somebody jumps overboard and they have their survival suit on, that's a nice flotation device. And I've had, I've had a body that was skeletonized and drifted for two years, went from Alaska down to Hawaii. What, is, what do you mean skeletonized? That means uh, eaten down to the bone. Oh. Like uh, my wife and I just went to down to California on the train, and we had wonderful lamb, and we ate the meat right down to the bone. So I suppose if I tossed it out the train, it, the, somebody would say, oh, that animal is skeletonized. <laughs> <laughs> that was your review of the restaurant? Uh, we, did, it was, we skeletonized that lamb. <laughs> well, I, that's my own personal take on it. I work with a lot of medical examiners on human remains that wash up, on hit, drifting heads and feet and all kinds of things that uh, wash up. Well, what what would it take? Like, what creature it can get in there to skeletonize a human body like that? What's eating a skele- a, a human down to the bones? Oh, crabs. Crabs love, I'm sure they love human flesh, and they'll eat right down to the bone, but they, they can't eat through the sneaker. And there's a lot of people missing, for example, in British Columbia that you mentioned before. There's about 2,400 people missing officially in the police records, and uh, some of those are going to be lost in the water. So it's not unusual mm-hmm. to find parts of bodies washing up. Have you ever had um, a foot wash up and then you'll have the, the other side come up, like a left foot wash up, and then there's its its counterpart a few weeks later? No. Um, it's just it's just usually one at a time, like a head. I had a head wash up, but the body never showed up. So it's a... Uh, Wait, what? <laughs> we had, it was a pretty famous case on uh, one of those forensic channels, and all they ever found was the head. The head washed up 40, 70 miles away, and... I was asked to look into it to see if the drift of the head matched known oceanographic currents, and it did. Um, so you have a head here, and down in Florida there were a couple of guys fishing offshore, and they they hooked a head with with their with their gear, and they didn't want to go in because they didn't want to spoil their day of fishing. So they put the head in a five gallon bucket and kept on fishing. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> did they did they did the hook catch the guy's lip? Like, did it seem like he was trying to get on the? I think the it. I think this uh, maybe at this point we should probably check in with Carrie again. So Carrie, how you how you holding up? Oh, I could not do that job. He's a brave man. It's still or a it's, man with a strong stomach. Yeah, it's still kind of gross. You think? Yeah, yeah. What? What? I uh, mean, it's just really macabre, I guess. But uh, yeah, gross. I I, I wouldn't want to see that. It's one thing to hear about it. That's bad enough. But if I had, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I can handle that. Well, there's still there's still more to come. All right. What's, oh God! Are you feeling uh, more curious at this point or more grossed out? Um. Uh, ooh. I don't know. It's kind of a close finish there. I guess I'm still curious. Okay. We're we're gonna we're gonna roll ahead with this. Um. You know. Uh, we apologize for um for maybe for what's to come and for all of our previous programming. <laughs> So okay. you're a, you were an oceanographer. Now you describe yourself as a, a beachcomber, right? Yeah, I'm still an oceanographer, but now I want to know where things float in the ocean. And there's all kinds of stuff on the sea, but nobody really has studied it. So I'm, I guess I'm the world's first flotsamologist. <laughs> <laughs> so people, uh, you're the guy people go to when they find something on the beach. What are, what are some things that people have contacted you that they've found? 
Well, uh, sometimes yachts wash up on the other side of the ocean. <clears throat> so uh, people ask me, where's my yacht? And I say, well, it's 8,000 miles away out in the South Pacific. And they say, uh, well, should I go get it? I said, no, I think the natives are... Uh, have turned it into a garbage scow, so I don't think you want to go. Wow. <laughs> the ocean is so vast, and people are on their cell phones so much, they lose, and people lose track of how vast things are. Has anyone ever told you about something washing up on shore that, uh, you know, kind of brought out military or government officials to, to clean it up or investigate? Uh, well, things, a lot of times there are, how should I say, um, Inconvenient truths are always, I'm always bumping up against them, like NASA, when they're launching all these new satellites for cell phones, uh, they use about eight rockets around uh, the central rocket, and uh, each rocket has a, um, a cap inside the booster, and so as the rocket goes, gets ready to be launched and gets about 100 miles, they have to fire the plugs out of the rockets, and those plugs are three foot in diameter, five inches thick and weigh a couple hundred pounds, and they fall into the water. Well, it's a federal offense to have one, but NASA doesn't want them back. So people bring them, bring them to me at my beachcomber fair in Cocoa Beach, and they say, well, what is this? And I say, well, you're not supposed to have that. I'm not supposed to tell you. <laughs> but the inconvenient truth is rockets are messy things, and a lot of things fall off of rockets. You might have seen the movie, um, what's the one with Sandra Bullock, uh, Gravity? Yeah, right. All that debris up there, well, a lot of that debris comes down. <laughs> you know, hear, hearing you talk about this, I, I think of uh, the, the way I think about the world and um, how far away Japan is and how far away Europe is. And you're kind of constantly encountering that things will travel from one of those places to another on, on their own. Do you, think that you, do you think your picture of the world is, is different than other people? Well, I view, I view the world as quite fluid, and of course it's mostly ocean. Yeah. So it only takes three years to go across the Pacific, two years to go from New York City to London. So it's um, the ocean very, very quickly disperses things. The currents are very effective. They uh, they're moving water and whatever floats on the water at the rate of about ten miles a day. Uh, it doesn't sound like much, but they don't rest. So the ocean can be pretty, pretty quick. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for talking to us about this. It's a pleasure, Mike. Pleasure, Ian. Okay, here is a sound effect you, you don't often hear. Mm. Mm. What that is, it's a recreation of our producer, Stephen, opening and then eating some graham crackers earlier this week. He loves graham crackers. And he got curious about them. He's a naturally curious guy. And what he found out was that when they were first created, graham crackers were more than just a snack. They had a higher purpose. Adi Braun uh, wrote about graham crackers in The Atlantic. So, Adi, you know, we all know graham crackers. Our producer, Stephen, in particular, is just obsessed with them. Um, but they, they weren't designed to just be a delicious snack, right? No, I mean, it was, it was definitely not supposed to be delicious, but it was a snack, but um, there were moral implications behind the snacking. So Sylvester Graham was the guy behind the Graham cracker, and he saw this correlation between um, health and sex. So, like, the more exciting the act, the more moral it was, and the worse it was for your health. 
and he really saw himself as as on a mission from God okay. um, for the sake of of humanity, kind of restore Americans to back to health. So, well, wait. So how yeah. do how do graham crackers uh, fit into like the moral side of this? So graham crackers came out of his graham diet. So he has this graham system of living, and at the heart of that is the graham diet. And it's, again, all about repressing physical stimulation. So the graham diet is, is very basic, and most vegetarians would recognize it today. It really relies on fruits, vegetables. It's a high-fiber diet, um, very little dairy, and whole wheat. And so he... Graham becomes kind of obsessed with this idea of uh, about of whole wheat, and he starts making his own wheat basically. And he wrote a whole treatise about it. And out of that, he he created uh, Graham bread, and from Graham bread came the Graham cracker. Uh, and it was, yeah, I mean that's kind of one of the the ironies of the whole story is that today the Graham cracker has. Uh, spices in it, which were not allowed in his diet, and it has sugar in it, and it's a commercial product. So everything so, that Graham hated is what the Graham cracker is today. Yeah. So would would the idea be, though, that, say, I don't know, that he would have a sexual feeling or, you know, excitement that he felt was uh, morally inappropriate, mm-hmm. and he'd just pop a Graham cracker to try and quell that? Kind of, yeah. I mean... You know, I think that the the point was to um, live this lifestyle so that you wouldn't even get to that point. So I don't I don't know if it was like a direct kind of you know like you you take a hit of your graham cracker every time you feel an urge. But I, I think the whole point was that you wouldn't, weren't even supposed to get to that point. You're just you're the whole your whole life is just about like repression and you know just making sure that you're on this kind of like moral moral road to health. Well, this is great. Thanks, Adi. All right. You know, we should we should test out if uh, graham crackers can really do what Sylvester Graham thought they could. We'll bring someone in, have them eat graham crackers, and see if it helps repress their urges. Coming into the studio now is our our official taster, Peter Sagel. So, uh, do you like uh, do you eat graham crackers? I'll, I have a graham cracker from time to time. I certainly enjoy a graham cracker. Do you notice anything different about yourself when you're eating them? You mean like a cessation of sexual interest? Yes. Not particularly, no. No, no, or any other. I just, it's like, oh, it's a graham cracker. It's a, it's a, it's a moderately sweet cookie cracker. Okay. All right, well, we, are, we have uh, queued up a series of powerful images to show you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what? Yes. So what we'll do is yes. we will flash these images while you are <laughs> eating a graham cracker. Right. And then you tell us. If there, if you notice any effect, okay, okay, all right, and we'll describe the images for the people at home, okay. Oh, that's not at all what I was expecting. The image Peter is looking at is uh, young Martha Stewart from her modeling career. All right, I'm having a bit of graham cracker. Now, I, I, uh, now I'm like, oh, it's Martha Stewart looking very young and spunky, and now I have a graham cracker in my mouth. So no, no, no effect. She doesn't seem any more or less attractive to me. Okay. Good. We'll go to the next slide here. Oh, my, my heart just raced a the little bit. The image Peter is seeing is the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series. Yeah. Take a bite Take a bite all of right, that cracker right. for me. I'm very excited now. I'm going to stop you mid-chew. What do you feel? still feel pretty good about that. It hasn't diminished my excitement. Okay. No. I'm thinking about that, and it was a good night. All right, let's, let's try another one. Okay. Guys, this is a workplace. The image I, Peter is looking at 
is a Civil War daguerreotype. Yeah, that that seems to be a um, family camping, mid-19th century. All right. Okay, what do you think? Like, what are those women doing with the Civil War soldiers? That's okay. basically... Although she does, the woman, I just happen to know, she does have kind of a, a cocky look to her. She has a one arm on her hip. Would you st- it seems that graham cracker has increased yeah. increased your yeah, focus maybe. on the woman. Yeah. Well, I I think we've we've pretty much proven that graham crackers have have no effect on one's primal urges. I'd say if anything, we've seen that in certain cases they actually enhance your urges. Yeah. Well, Peter, thanks so much for for helping us uh, test out the theories of Sylvester Graham. It's it's my pleasure. We heard from Nathan. Nathan says he listens to How to Do Everything while sorting his Lego collection and that he's down to his last 200 quarts of unsorted Legos. You know, but before we uh, play 15 seconds of music for, for Nathan, um, can we, I need to know more. Can we get him on the line? Hello, Nathan. Hi there. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad at all. So that that seems like a lot of Legos. Um, you know, for somebody who isn't uh, you know, in the Lego community, which um, is surprisingly large, actually, uh, yeah. it, it does sound like a lot. But it's this, this is just my unsorted parts. Um, I for for somebody in the Lego community, I have a a medium sized collection. I have mm, just shy of a million parts or so. You know, that's an estimate. Wow. Uh, but you know, most of them are pre sorted. I've got oh, I think I'm into about 300 different containers of different parts. How uh, how much longer do you think it's going to take you to sort through 200 quarts? Well, um, so these last four bins uh, are ones that have been sitting around since, oh man, and accumulating for about two years. Um, I am nearly done with one of the four, and that's I've been working on that for about two weeks. Wow. I expect I'll be done eh, September-ish. Okay. All right. Well, there's there's a summer, huh? Yeah. How many, Nathan, do you think, how many Legos do you think you have uh, hidden away in the cracks and cushions in your couch? Oh, God. I, well, so my collection, probably not as many. Um, you know, maybe, you know, probably in, in the hundreds or so, but, you know, low hundreds. But the kids' collection is downstairs where the couch is, and their collection, I'm constantly, constantly... <laughs> Every time you sweep the floor, you pick up a handful of Legos. So. That's right. <laughs> I, I just did some quick calculations here. Uh, you could also say that you have 38,400 teaspoons of Legos. <laughs> and some of these won't fit very well into teaspoons, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you... Uh, let's, let's say this. If you could use all of these unsorted Legos to build one, one thing, what, what might you build? Uh, actually, that one is pretty easy. I've got a, well, me and my uh, partner, Jennifer, uh, we have an ongoing project that we're constantly building new additions to. Uh, it's uh, something that's uh, in a standard called Micropolis. Right. Um, and uh, basically, it's a, it's a cityscape that's built out of little quarter block, you know, like city blocks, a quarter of a city block modules. Uh-huh. And so we're constantly adding to that, and that's one of the reasons why I've got the collection in the first place. And we've got about 200,000 parts sunk into, uh, you know, an existing model of that. Wow. And, you know, it's just 
over time, all the rest of these parts are going to probably go into that project. That sounds awesome. It's fun. It's good to have a hobby. So you have you have Legos in the way that some people have cats or dogs. Uh, we also have dogs, which is the scary <laughs> part. But yeah, yeah, it's a lot like that. <laughs> all right, Nathan. These next 15 seconds are for you. We built this city. We built this you know, this song, uh, it's not the first time we've played it on our show. It was actually a finalist in the World's Worst Song Competition we held a few years ago. In this case, though, it's actually a great soundtrack to Nathan's job of building a city. Not with rock and roll, but with Legos. Yeah, the song the song would be um, pretty literal if it was, we built this city on Legos. Yeah, but then again, uh, Nathan isn't sorting a, a million rock and rolls. Well, that does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I, I learned that uh, the the Air Jordan has had a, a bigger impact than just uh, improving the game of basketball. Not only did it help you dunk more, it also helped your feet survive after you'd been eaten. Yeah, you don't see that in the uh, in the commercials. Yeah, it's just a lot of cool dunks. They never mention how it protects your dead feet. I, I learned that uh, graham crackers were originally intended to uh, quell one's urges. Right, it, yeah, they're like the cold shower of snacks. I mean, you think about s'mores. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the s'more is really, really not the intended, it's almost counter the intended purpose to just demand some more. Well, not only that, but it's, it's, it's gluttony. I think uh, Sylvester Graham wanted celeses. How to Do Everything is produced by Steven Tobias with technical direction from Lorna White. Special thanks this week to Robert Newhouse. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly. There is no no cracker that can quell Seth's urges. Yeah, a Randy Seth is not a... You stay away. Also, uh, thanks to our artist in residence, Justin Witte. You can get us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Mike Danforth. And I'm Ian Chillog. This is NPR.